They're coming to get you, Barbara. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. The unburied dead are coming back to life seeking human victims. This week on a podcast from beneath, Waxwork. William, how's it going? I'm doing good, Gary. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Kind of tired, but we'll get through this one. Um, so have you, have you ever been to a wax museum? Uh, I've passed by Madame Tussauds in Times Square, but I, the prices are pretty high. So <laughs> the idea of spending that kind of money just to stand next to a wax figure, uh, you know, when, especially when you can see them online. I actually did go to what is probably, may not exist anymore, but when I visited it, it was probably the worst wax museum in the world. It was the Hollywood Wax Museum. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if it was on the Sunset Strip. What's the other main boulevard where they have all the stars on the street? Uh, uh, anyway, it was, it was like the tourist trappy area of LA, right, of yeah. Hollywood. Uh, and and, and uh, as part of the plane ticket, you got a discount on either the Ripley's Museum or the Hollywood Wax Museum. So uh, I took the Hollywood Wax Museum and it was the shittiest wax museum I've ever seen. <laughs> First of all, the figures didn't appear to be wax. They appeared to be made out of styrofoam or something. And they were like figures with the fingers broken off. People put out their cigarettes on them. You know? <laughs> uh, but it was quite entertaining. I have some photos that I took. Uh, I'll, maybe I'll post them sometime. Uh, there you go, yeah. yeah, I think the only one I've been to, it's funny you mentioned the Ripley's. I think, I believe it was either in Tennessee or probably maybe South Carolina at one of the one of the local Ripley and I believe they had like a small wax museum and I remember going to that one um wasn't really creeped out by it so I'm trying to figure out why they felt a horror movie based on a wax museum would be effective well it goes back apparently I mean 1924 was when uh Paul Lenny I think the German director did wax works uh, which was uh, probably one of the first horror anthology films. And the idea was that each figure, I haven't seen the film, it's available on YouTube. Uh, looks like it might be interesting. But the idea was that each figure, each um, little tableau in the Wax Museum sets off a story. One story is about Ivan the Terrible. One story is about Jack the Ripper. And one story is about, I think it's like an Arabian Nights uh, uh, story. So basically, uh, the, basically the same storyline of our what we watch for this it is similar waxwork. as a matter of fact i see on the wikipedia entry for for waxwork uh for wax works what, what is this wax work or wax works we watched wax work which okay. was confusing when i was trying to look it up too i was like well what did i watch <laughs> <laughs> well it's even more confusing because uh and this is a little off the off the topic but it's a one one of many criticisms that i will make of, of this film uh wax works is a a term for a wax museum. Uh, wax work is a term for a figure in wax. Uh, wax works is chiefly a British expression. Uh, I don't think it was ever widely used in the United States, but in this film, all these young people who don't seem to have any knowledge of anything particularly, they all seem to know what a wax work, wax work is. Wax works <laughs> and they referred to it alternately as a wax work. And as a matter of fact, the sign in front of the house that's supposedly the wax museum in this says wax work, I believe. Yeah, but it's like, uh, did they have, was it two words? 
on that yes, side? Yes, still okay, works. Yeah. But why waxwork? Waxwork yeah. would refer to a single figure, right? This yeah. supposed to be waxworks. <laughs> and most wax museums, if they wanted to seem classy, they wouldn't say waxworks. They would say wax museum uh, or something like that. I mean, Madame Tussaud isn't known as a waxworks. Right, yeah. Uh, that's like a slang expression, I would think, in, in the UK. Anyway, uh, I just thought it was kind of strange because in 1988, when this movie was made, nobody in the, no teenagers in the United States would have any experience with wax museums of any kind. They certainly wouldn't say, oh, wax work. I know what that yeah. is, you know. Uh, so that was kind of a flaw. Uh, but uh, anyway, you were, what was your original question? I got us, I got us off the track there. Uh, just what, what about a wax museum is worth a horror movie? Well, I think probably the, and I've seen this, I think Robert Block, a uh, guy who wrote Psycho, he also wrote a short story about um, somebody who is in a wax museum overnight and the, uh, the figures in the uh, gallery of horrors or the, uh, where all the uh, criminals, uh, you know, are, they all start to come to life. Uh, so I think probably the idea was uh, these figures were so realistic back when wax museums were popular, uh, maybe in the 1890s. I don't know when they reached the peak of their popularity, but um, they were so realistic that people began to fantasize uh, that maybe that there were real people underneath or maybe that they could come to life or something like that. So it might have seemed like an attractive idea for horror stories. Uh, House of Wax, the Vincent Price movie, which is uh, an admirable remake of Mystery of the Wax Museum. Uh, both of those films have the same idea at the heart of the story, which is that uh, crazy guy who used to sculpt great wax figures. He has his hands damaged in a fire that's started by a, um, his partner in the, in the wax museum who wants to burn the place down for the insurance money. Uh, and so he can't make wax figures anymore. So he uh, survives the fire and he decides to reopen uh, his wax museum, but he's going to steal bodies and embed them in wax and use those as the figures. And as a horror story, you know, we overlook the absurdity of that yeah. and we sort of accept it. I mean, obviously the big problem is you take a body and you immerse it in boiling wax, you're basically boiling the body, right? It's not going to come out as a perfectly posed yeah. figure with rosy <laughs> cheeks and bright eyes, you know? Uh, you certainly like in, in Wax Museum and in House of Wax and in Mystery of the Wax Museum, uh, the sculptor, the mad sculptor is going on about his Marie and Marie Antoinette, his masterpiece is Marie Antoinette. Uh, well, Marie Antoinette wouldn't look too hot if it was a, a dead body that had been covered in wax. You know, that would be a pretty hideous thing. Uh, so that idea doesn't really work, doesn't really make sense, doesn't make sense in either version of that story, that's, that a guy could have a mask made out of wax that moves perfectly with his lips and his eyes. Oh, yeah. you know? And then suddenly when somebody hammers on it, it shatters into pieces <laughs> like it's made out of cement. Uh, that doesn't really make sense. But the admirable thing about both of those stories is that they set up uh, a sort of revenge story and it has great dramatic potential and they play it for all it's worth. I prefer Mystery of the Wax Museum. I think that's actually an excellent film. A House of Wax is a nice job. It's beautifully shot because it was uh, fairly early in the 3D craze, I guess. It was a big success 
uh, as a as a 3D movie. Vincent Price is as entertaining as always. Uh, Carolyn Jones makes an appearance in it. Uh, but I like Mystery of the Wax Museum because that feels like uh, a pulp magazine story come to life. Uh, the, it was a, a early color films, 1933. Is that the one with uh, Carradine? That's a uh, Lionel Atwell. Okay, okay. Because I started watching one that had Carradine in it, and I can't remember what it was called now. Well, there may have been remakes or, or other. I know there was one with Cameron Mitchell made in the 60s or 70s, <laughs> Terror, Terror at the Wax Museum or something like that. There seems to be an endless number of Wax Museum movies. But um, Mystery of the Wax Museum was Lionel Atwill and Fay Ray, who must have just finished doing King Kong when she did uh, this film. And it was a uh, two-strip two Technicolor. Uh, and for years, the color version, they shot it simultaneously, color and black and white. And for years, for decades, the color version was assumed to be lost. And then uh, someone at the studio or one of the producers of the film found a color version. It was pretty degraded, but you could still get an idea of what it looked like. And I love that film. I thought it looked remarkably evocative. It looked like a pulp magazine cover when those lurid pulp magazine covers come to life. Uh, uh, and, and Lionel Atwell, I think, is, you know, on a par with Vincent Price. He always gives you a good show. And I guess that's why he, even after he had a, a fairly serious scandal in his uh, life, uh, Universal continued to use him. It's just that he was yeah. too good to give up, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, so if you haven't seen that, there's a new restored version. And I understand the color on it is just spectacular now. Uh, that I would seek out if, if people are, if, if you like House of Wax and you want to see another version of that story, it, this is arguably superior to House of Wax. Yeah, and of course we had the remake in early 2000s with Paris Hilton, Yeah, which it was, I guess the horror part of it was, I guess the, it was kind of like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre type story where they go to this old boxing museum and there's a family there that's killing, you know, would kill the people and then use them as their sculpts, which yeah. you know just wasn't as good. But well, there's there's been a lot of movies over the years that have tried to take advantage of the fear that people have of figures. You know, these sort of eerie. Maybe it's like an early version of that. Um, what do they call that? Uh, Uncanny Valley. You know, that you see something that looks perfectly human, yeah. but mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, it's not it's not alive, and so it causes people's imaginations to go. You know, uh, uh, you know, to run rampant. Uh, there was a film I think was called Taurus Trap, and there are scenes in that where uh, I think the killer saves mannequins, uh, and there's a lot of shots of the mannequins. And of course, there's um, what was the other one? There was another one that oh well, there was a famous episode of The Twilight Zone where the woman uh, in, uh, goes into the department store, and the, all of all the department store dummies come to life. Oh yeah, life. yeah. And that really isn't a waxwork story, but still the same idea of people being freaked out by dummies that may come to life or, you know, uh, ideas along those lines. Yeah, there was uh, a uh, Christopher Eccleston, his first uh, his first episode when he does Doctor Who had mannequins that would come to life. Oh, really? Yeah. They're kind of creepy looking. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of a, a creepy thing. And uh, I guess what's uh, it's sort of similar to the fear that people have of ghosts. It's uh, uh, you don't know if you can trust your own senses. You know, right, did, I, yeah. did I see that thing move? Uh, 
Oh, because I, I always I always go back to uh, uh, ceramic dolls, China dolls. Those are always the eyes moving when you look at it. You know, <laughs> gives you that kind well, of creepy feeling. Yeah, along those lines too. Uh, like uh, all the movies that have been made about like Child's Play and mm -hmm. uh, Chucky, and also uh, Dead of Night, the uh, famous British anthology film that has the story about the ventriloquist doll. That, uh, and, and Anthony Hopkins's uh, movie, and uh, I guess it was in the '70s, Magic, yeah. also about a ventriloquist guy with a—I don't know if it's possessed or what the deal is on that. But yeah, dummies, mannequins, wax figures can be creepy and spooky. The problem, uh, and I thought this even when Paris Hilton's version came out, uh, the problem really is that wax museums as a thing is pretty much something from the distant past. Yeah, it's very hard to make a story uh, that really makes sense. If you're talking about young people who are hankering to go see the wax museum displays, <laughs> yeah. that doesn't really make sense. And waxworks, waxworks, waxwork, yeah. <laughs> Is it waxwork? Yes, okay. it's waxwork. Yeah, I'll probably have it right by the end of the, the <laughs> yeah. hour. Uh, that uh, it was a three point five million dollar movie, and it was uh, funded by uh, Vestron Pictures. Vestron Pictures was really on a spending spree around that time because they had had a fair amount of success as a distributor of videos, uh, VHS uh, primarily, I guess. I don't know if they survived long enough to get into DVDs, but they figured out pretty quickly that the tapes that sold and, and rented the best were the ones that were for, uh, recent theatrical releases. So they said, okay, let's start making our own theatrical releases. They had a few successes. I think they were involved with Dirty Dancing which was a big hit, mm -hmm. but they had more than their fair share of stinkers as well. Uh, but a lot of the movies seem to be designed like this one to simply have like a token theatrical release so that you say it's a, the it's a theatrical movie, benefit from the attention it gets from that, the publicity it gets from that, and then put it right out on video. And I understand that it was successful in this case. Uh, I assume it was because they did a sequel, which isn't something that happens that often. Uh, if you don't have a successful film, chances are you're not. Yeah, you're not. Yeah. Too, especially when the price tag is three point five million dollars. You know, uh, but um, the presence of Patrick McNee and uh, David Warner, you know, that certainly is an attraction for people that are fans of the you know uh, British actors of that of, the, of a particular period. Uh, John Rice Davies, he was pretty John popular Rice back Davies, then too. Yeah. yeah back well, then. I guess it wasn't too long after he did Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Right. Yeah. yeah uh he doesn't have much of a role no it's pretty, it's pretty much uh but I, I think my biggest objection is that the, the script you know it just uh, i don't know how you feel about it and i i can imagine somebody your age group uh if you saw this you saw this first on video yeah i saw it first on video and i enjoyed it mm -hmm. and then we talked we were talking about it early, late, later on and you said is this a Charles Band movie? And I was like, I don't think it oh, is. Right. Yes. But when I watched it again, I was like, it does feel like a full moon feature. Yeah. And, and of course, I do have problems with it now seeing it later, but doesn't doesn't hold up for you. I think the the idea of the uh, the wax music, the the displays, you know, you can enter them and they become real. And of course, that's a good idea. Uh, getting up to that point was boring. And I didn't like any of the characters and yeah. it was just, it seemed like it was, they didn't know how to get to the, and I think it would have worked better. And this, this would have been like from your idea of 
you like movies with carnivals, I think if it was a carnival sideshow, yes. probably would have been a better story. We could have fact, a better way to get there. When I saw how they were introducing David Warner, I thought, oh, this is going to be like something Wicked This Way Comes. The, mm -hmm. uh, Ray Bradbury, I guess Disney did a version of that in the late 80s. Uh, which wasn't entirely successful, but that idea of the carnival comes to town—that's that, you know, an old strange man, you know, uh, running the carnival—and and I could see the teenagers saying, "Well, this looks interesting. This looks weird. We never had this happen before." But in this movie, what they do is they have these two, <laughs> you know, they have the slut girl and her sort of shy, uh, introverted friend. Uh, they're just passing by a house and i guess in this town everybody's rich so the yeah. house is really more like a mansion and as they're passing david warner sort of mysteriously appears next to them on the lawn wearing what looks like a costume for a <laughs> ringling brothers uh, you know like he's a circus uh, circus uh, guy uh, and he engages in a little uh, you know trite banter with them and invites them to come back uh later in the evening and then he disappears again yeah and the problem i have with this is, is first of all uh why is he opening a wax museum in his house i mean who does that right and why would anybody say let's go to that guy's house because he says there's a wax museum in it <laughs> you know i mean it's just not a thing people would do right you don't go to people's private houses to, to see wax wax figures. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And particularly with these kids who look yeah. like they're only interested in drinking and getting laid and hanging out. Why would they be interested in any of this shit? Uh, and they try to suggest that maybe this girl, China, who's presented initially as the slut, and the, this movie has problems with women. I mean, it's yeah. really shocking the way the women are portrayed. It really is an <laughs> 80s movie. You can see there's nobody woke. Yeah, everybody's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sound asleep on these issues. But they try to suggest that she's such a slut that she's actually flirting with David Warner, you know, giving him the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> David Warner looks, I mean, he's a, a terrific actor and I'm sure he's a terrific guy. But he's certainly not the sort of guy from appearances that a young, you know, a college age girl would be winking and, you know, giving the eye to, especially since he's fucking weird. You know, and yeah. they don't react at all to the fact that this guy just suddenly appears in front of them and then disappears. And that apparently they're so, uh, you know, calloused and cynical that that doesn't phase them at all. I mean, if that happened to me, if I was passing a house and suddenly somebody sprung up <laughs> out of the lawn, I would say, well, whatever they're selling, I'm not interested. I yeah, certainly yeah. won't be coming back at midnight for a party there, you know. Uh, but the, the, the other problem is, and I'd be, I, I hope you can help me out with this because I've been trying all day to figure out what the <laughs> plot is. Uh, this guy was a sculptor of wax figures and he steals trinkets from this Zach guy's grandfather, mm -hmm. kills him in the process. Uh, and, I, and just as a side note, I knew I was in trouble with this movie when they have an opening scene of the film and a film that's supposed to be a comedy right uh, a horror comedy and the opening scene is somebody getting their head set on fire and stuffed into a fireplace <laughs> yeah they, the director doesn't really understand the concept of tone right <laughs> you got to establish a certain tone and starting your movie with a guy getting his head set on fire 
somebody we don't even get to meet. It's just some guy that gets his head set on fire. That's, I don't even know if they, they probably described it that way in the cast list. Yeah. Uh, that's not a good way to start a movie like this, right? The best way to start a movie like this would be to have a sense of normalcy. Everything's going fine. Everything's going great. And then the weird element comes in, right? You don't start with violence and, and weirdness. And then you know, for a while, I thought I was watching society again. And I was yeah, yeah. getting ready to curse. Sorry, <laughs> did this but let me, let me just stick with the plot. So he's a sculptor. He gets these trinkets because Zach's, and I don't remember the actor's last name, uh, but he's the Gremlins guy. Yeah, Galligan. Galligan, okay. Zach Galligan's grandfather and Patrick McNee apparently enjoyed collecting trinkets, as, they, as he describes it, from the most evil people that ever lived. And we put aside for a moment the fact that apparently the most evil people that ever lived include the Phantom of the Opera, Count Dracula, <laughs> Frankenstein yeah. monster, and who, who am I leaving out? Uh, the Wolfman. The Wolfman, yes. Those are the most evil people that ever lived. And the idea, as Patrick McNee explains late in the movie, in a, a, what felt like a half-hour monologue, uh, the sculptor, David Warner, whose last name is Lincoln, for some reason, he uses these trinkets and performs some sort of voodoo ritual by creating a... Uh, a wax effigy of these evil people and embedding the trinket in it, in them, he can bring them to life, but they exist in some sort of uh, other dimension. And the other dimension is sort of like whatever the display in the wax museum is, that's their world. Right. Right. Uh, does this make any sense so far? I mean, I have to admit it doesn't make any sense to me. Why would a wax museum, uh, why would a sculptor for a wax museum get, uh, be stealing these trinkets? Why would he have any knowledge or interest in voodoo? And the whole point apparently is if he can lure enough victims into his wax museum, uh, he can push them into these other dimensions and the evil people will kill them or enslave them or something. And they become part of the tableau and then the zombie apocalypse will happen. Right, yeah. yeah, something like that. Does that make any sense? <laughs> Not really. No, right. And all through the movie, it's like one nonsensical thing after the other because they didn't really have a story. They mistook uh, complexity for cleverness. They thought that we could just keep adding stuff, little more stuff here, more stuff there, and that somehow that will equal a, a good story. But it doesn't. I mean, the story for House of Wax is... You know, nobody needs a, a guidebook to understand that, right? And it's effective as a, as a drama because it is so straightforward. And we understand everybody's motivation. We don't buy the idea that he that anybody would be crazy enough to be dipping dead bodies in wax to make right, figures yeah. for wax museum. But we accept that as sort of, you know, okay. But in this, we don't even understand when he when he when these people are victimized and they become part of the tableau. Right, which is I, I assume what happens. It seems to happen almost immediately, right? Right. Yeah, it seems like yeah. 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 And then a moment later, they, you know, other people look over and they see that person is now part of the tableau, right? The victim of Dracula or the Wolfman or whatever. Yeah. Okay. But at the end of the movie, he, David Warner has a big vat of bubbling wax in his basement, right? 
And the implication is that he's taking the bodies of those people and putting, putting them in wax and then putting them on display. But that's not right, right? He doesn't do no. that. Way. So what's the bubbling wax for? I have no idea. <laughs> and how is it possible that when the police detective uh, finds, I guess it's the body of China, the girl from the, for the slut girl from the beginning. Yeah, and the, he, she, and the dry girl. Right, he digs something out of her cheek. And I don't even know what it is that he's digging out of her cheek. Do you I'm, know? I'm assuming that he just, whenever like she's wax now, but where she was human before, like he's getting like wax, like I guess her now her muscles are made out of wax and that's what he got out. I don't That's the way I took it. Wait, you're, you're, you're putting a lot of effort into that. <laughs> yeah, <explanation>. no. <laughs> <laughs> the writer's guild should pay you. For, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you have to be a union member before you start coming up with these ideas Gary, cause, yeah because <laughs> i couldn't figure out for the life of me what the point of that was and of course in the movie as it plays out it doesn't have a point because before the guy even takes 10 steps away you know first they had this big elaborate scene of him clawing the stuff out of her cheek and then he for some strange reason there's a big close-up of him trying to prod the piece of whatever the fuck it is into a plastic bag and he can't yeah. do it so he picks it up and throws it into the plastic bag with a sort of sound of disgust, like, ooh, I didn't want to touch it. Well, what is it? I don't even know yeah. what it is. <laughs> then he gets up and he walks five steps and he falls into the mummy uh, display. Yeah. I guess the mummy also counts as one of the most evil people that ever lived. And when he's in these worlds, who are the other people? I mean, I know who the mummy is and I know who the wolfman is and I know who Frankenstein's monster. I know a lot, but what about all these other people? Where do they yeah, come from? No, I couldn't forget the, I don't know if they were, who was some famous like uh, explorers that would have, I just figured maybe that's who they were supposed well, to have been. Possibly, or... yeah. But I mean, in terms of this concept that they're developing, that he created these wax figures of these evil people, did he create wax figures of all their oh, yeah, subordinates? Yeah. And, and right, yeah. That? I mean, when he gets pushed into this mummy world, right away he's standing next to a beautiful woman. Who is she? I have no idea. <laughs> and there's a an older guy who's telling him to help him lift the lift the lift open up. the vault. Yeah, yeah. And of course, they can't resist putting snakes and tarantulas inside a tomb that's been sealed for. <laughs> for yeah. You know, but we let that go, right? That's. Uh, uh, but. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't understand any. I, it seems to be one of those movies where they're sort of getting along on the fact that a lot of people are good-natured and good-hearted, and they'll say, "Ah, oh, it's just entertainment." Yeah, it's just they won't take it seriously. Yeah. <laughs> but we also had, we also had characters that were almost like fans of certain exhibits and experts. You know, the the the, the cop, he was a uh, he was like fascinated with the mummy, knew all about it, and then you had the you know the one girl she was really into dracula so that's mm. what that's the one she ends up in and one and I, who's really into the marquis de, de Sade, which i didn't know i was like well why would they put him in there yeah it <laughs> that's not even like in a popular character like i had to look it up see who well i could see them saying uh, i could see somebody running a wax museum saying let's have a figure of the marquis de Sade because he's a notorious figure in history but the truth of the matter is he was just a writer he was a writer and a philosopher and a, a political uh, uh satirist i guess you'd say his stories are famous because of the extraordinary vulgarity and and profanity and the sexual content is hair raising even today the stuff he writes about is uh, amazing but he wasn't one of the most evil people who ever lived yeah. <laughs> i, I mean, thought he was chaining people up and whipping them 
No, I mean, <laughs> Marquinhos had spent half of his life in prison and in mental institutions. But it was, he never, there was never a formal charge brought against him, as far as I know. It was mostly because of the scandalous stuff he was writing and because he was apparently uh, pro-French Revolution. Uh, so th those might have been the reasons why they put him away. His, his uh, writings cover a pretty wide range of things, but the stuff that he was writing, the sexual stuff that he was writing, uh, that is pretty hard stuff to take even now. Uh, and I imagine at the time it must have been, you know, really shocking. Also, at that time, you could go to jail just for blasphemy. Right, yeah. You know, you could go to jail for participating in an orgy, which apparently he did do uh, on at least one or two occasions. <laughs> But um, he was kind of had a sort of sad life. I mean, it, was, there wasn't, it wasn't all this business whipping, you know, and, you know, young women. And, and, that, and I thought that that was a particularly distasteful scene. The idea that uh, she apparently has to be convinced that it isn't such a good idea to die from whipping in order to achieve her first orgasm. Uh, you know, that... That's weird shit, you know. I don't know what that's doing in a movie like this. Yeah, I don't know. I thought that was a just having him as even the like the end villain was mm. kind of weak. I'd rather have seen the Dracula character be like the main. <laughs> well, yeah. maybe maybe the problem was the the guy who was playing Dracula was such a lump. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. Miles O'Keefe, who is the uh, big hunk guy from Tarzan, the Bo Derek Tarzan movie. And apparently when you put clothes on the guy, he's no use. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I just, thought, I just thought the sword fighting between Zach Galligan and Marky Desaad at the end was kind of a, uh, they didn't need it. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that whole scene at the end with all the, all the different monsters. I mean, I suppose it, it uh, prefigures, uh, what's the one with Sigourney Weaver, Cabin in the Woods? Or... Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's a similar idea of trying to explain, trying to bring all the different monsters together in, in one universe. I think they were much more successful, <laughs> even though I didn't particularly <laughs> like that film. It was a hell of a lot smarter than this one. Uh, I mean, th this, I just, I mean, I, they even had uh, the um, Little Shop of Horrors plan. Kind of yeah, thing. well, I saw that. I think when I first seen it, I was like, okay, it's the, I thought it was the pod people from Invasion of the Body Snatchers, yeah. but then when it talks at the end, I was like, okay, they're obviously. Yeah. I didn't know if maybe it was supposed to have been uh, Invasion oh, of the Body have... Snatchers, and then somebody else added the, the you know, in editing, someone was like, oh, that's Lost Harbor Horrors. Let me add the sound, you know, the voice to it. And well, it doesn't make any sense either way, right? Because Invasion of the Body Snatchers involves aliens, and this is supposed to be all about evil humans, right? Yeah, <laughs> and certainly doesn't make any sense that the plan. But the idea again is. They're hoping that uh, people will be generous and say, oh, that's not that funny. Yeah. With it, you know, uh, it, it, at the time, I guess Little Shop of Horrors was uh, on its way to being a, a big movie. I think it was already a success on Broadway. Yeah, I don't know probably, if the movie came out. But I think the movie had already been out before this one, so. right? Well, that was a that was a pretty big production. I think at the time it was one of the most expensive movies ever made. Yeah. And uh, so I could see them sort of thinking, well, we should probably work something in about that one because that's going to be a, a big hit. But it doesn't make sense in the movie. And the fact that they're so willing to throw aside the logic of their of their own story, the world that they created, 
and introduce elements like that, that doesn't, you know, that really doesn't speak well of their abilities as, as storytellers. You have to have a little bit of integrity, even if you're doing a comedy, right? Uh, there has to be some sort of consistent through line. Here they got, uh, we're told one thing one moment, we're told another thing another moment. Apparently at one point, uh, Zach Gallagher uh, decides that if you don't believe in these creatures, then they can't harm you. They can't harm you, yeah. Uh, that seems a little like a sort of a last last minute uh, thing to be throwing in there, you know. Yeah, I feel like they just maybe they when they got to the end of the movie, they thought, oh, we don't have enough. So let's just add. So they just started adding other, you know, I think there was some kind of snake person that I seen. There was a bunch of things at the end that you didn't see during the during the film that seemed like yeah. we just went through and added real quick. It's a real shit show at the end. I mean, it's uh, goes to show you how uh, when they try to do those sort of spectacular finales, you know, everybody everybody fighting and everything burning down. If you don't have a really talented group of people doing it, you end up with a lot of crap. You know, I mean, I was like watching the movie with one eye and <laughs> my phone. Uh, yeah. Of course, it was uh, it was written in three days. If that's not surprise, that's probably well, not a surprise. That... You're right. <laughs> What a shock! Yeah. <laughs> it took three whole days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so it wasn't something that they just sort of scribbled on the back of a napkin on the way no. to the studio. No, <laughs> and I guess they were going. They were supposed. They were going to try to get Jason Voorhees, the children from Village of the Damned, and the Thing. But I guess for copy, you know, or copyright reasons, they couldn't use them. So, yeah. so that's. Well also none of those would make sense in the story either right Right, i mean ideally uh, if you were going to proceed from the original notion that they collected uh, some trinkets from uh evil people that actually existed and they used those to create these effigies all right well right there you could say that limits you to people like um rasputin maybe if you want you know or uh, Jack the Ripper, or um, who else can we? Hitler, possibly. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, they they should be actual people that actually live, not uh, fictional characters. Characters that would be known as fictional characters, even to the fictional characters in this movie. Right, the kids in this movie would certainly know who Dracula and Frankenstein are. They would know that they're not they're not real people uh, in history. They're fictional characters. So. What is that? How can you have Marquita Saad on the one hand and Frankenstein's monster in, a, in another scene? And is it Frankenstein's monster that's the evil one or is it his creator that's the yeah. evil? not get to see his creator. <laughs> no, um, the, uh, what was I going to say? I forgot what I was going to say now. <laughs> well, the, uh, what, what I would say is that with this movie, uh, it, it's an indication to me of how sometimes having a big budget can be a trap. I know the $3.5 million is not a lot of money for a Hollywood film, but for a low budget film, you know, for a low budget indie film, that's a tremendous amount of money. I mean, Halloween was made for a few hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Well, I would say, I would say that they definitely saved money by not building wax figures because you can see everybody moving (laughs) whenever they're, you know, when they first go in or looking at the, at each display, you can clearly see the people moving and breathing. right from the beginning yeah <laughs> we don't get any warm-ups or any you know time to sort of enjoy the idea that they might be wax museum figures no nope, they're breathing and moving <laughs> yeah. right from the start and i don't know why when they do scenes like that 
Why can't they just say, let's take a still picture of it? Yeah. <laughs> Use the still picture, you know? Uh, that wouldn't have been that hard, right? Or even just slow down the footage. Slow down the foot, yeah. Take a, a lot of, a long take, and then slow it down, right? And then the movement would be, uh, would be impossible to see. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, everything about the movie seems to have been dictated by what they were able to afford and when you bring in people like David Warner and Patrick McNee and a few other people who are name actors, you can see that a lot of that a budget going to them right away. And so, you know, you're only going to have them on certain days, which creates all sorts of pressures on how you're scheduling things. And it means you end up with silly things like uh, it's a story about a wax museum where there is no wax museum. It's a house. Right. Yeah. You know, right away, you're missing one of the best opportunities to really set the tone and set the mood for it by having some sort of exterior of a real wax museum you know and you could just like they do with house of wax i mean they had that scene with the guy in the house of wax playing with the paddleboard. i don't know if you've seen house of wax recently but uh at the grand premiere of the, of the museum of the new wax museum that benson price is opening they got a guy with a paddleball out front like a, a barker uh -huh. uh, come right in folks and see the wax museum. <laughs> And the, and the ball is bouncing into the audience because it's a 3D movie. Yeah. And when I saw that in the theater, I saw it as a kid. And as House of Wax freaked me out as a kid. Uh, you're easy to freak out when you're a kid. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought that was amazing. You'd see the ball zoop, zoop, zoop out, out into the audience. And they stay with it a little too long, I think. <laughs> it's like five minutes of the movie. You're just, right, yeah. <clears throat> but that was always one of the curses of 3D movies is that the directors always feel pressure to make use of the 3d effect and it, and it to, you know draws attention to the fact that it's a movie uh, and i can't really think of any 3d movie that i've seen where i really thought that the 3d added significantly to it maybe house of wax is the only one yeah maybe uh andy wall did flesh for frankenstein and it's actually paul morrissey did flesh for frankenstein which is a pretty good 3d movie but it's uh it's a comedy really a, a spoof of frankenstein movies so you know, it doesn't really need to generate any real suspense. It's just fun to watch. So when one, I guess, uh, uh, Udo Kier playing Dr. Frankenstein, when he gets run through at one point with a big stake or a big spike, and he has his spleen hanging on the end of the, of the, of the stick, and it's dangling, it appears like it's dangling right in front of you in the, if you're in the audience. Those are kind of fun things, you know. That yeah. I, I saw that movie with with an audience uh, on several occasions because it ran a theater I, I used to work in, and that always got a great reaction. Yeah, but, I guess uh, Friday Thirteenth Part Three was in three D, and they had the obvious, you know, somebody doing a yo yo, and they're filming. Oh, somebody has a yo yo, yeah. and then they, uh, <clears throat> somebody swinging a baseball bat, but they stop in their backswing. They stop way too long. That way the bat's in your face. Oh, <laughs> it right, was just, right. yeah, it's just, yeah, you could just tell that that's what well, they were doing. I seem to remember in Friday the 13th, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not an expert on those movies, but isn't that the movie where they he crushes the guy's head and his eyeball pops up? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. That was a pretty good use of 3 yeah, that was, Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> but um, but um, House of Wax may have, uh, I suppose you could say that all the things you can do with 3D were probably done in that movie, right? They're really, even in the, and I really dislike modern 3D because it always looks too dark and, and murky, you know, for my taste. I mean, they're already making movies, even the biggest budget Hollywood films are being shot 
as you know dark and and you know sort of grim the grim dark look yeah so uh, the problem with that is that 3d since you really have two images being projected on the screen you need more light uh matter of fact when we were running plush for frankenstein the distributor instructed us to paint our screen silver so that the light would bounce right back into the audience because you need you can't allow the light to become diffused you need the intensity of the light otherwise the picture becomes too dim to see uh, so a lot of the 3d movies that i've seen uh, and i haven't seen a whole heck of a lot of them but the ones i've seen you know, they're pretty dark and, and murky looking yeah I remember I seen I seen Captain America in 3D, and it wasn't too bad. I mean, it was uh, the glasses is what you know. Just sitting there wearing those glasses would get you. But there was a couple of scenes where he would throw the shield, and it was pretty effective. Mm. But uh, a couple of the like animated films seemed to they worked better. In 3D. They do, yes. Like there were scenes where it was snowing, and it was just like it was almost like it was snowing in the theater. <laughs> right, because they have complete control over the image, right? I yeah. mean, it's not like with a when you're shooting live action, we uh, you have to. I assume you have to have two cameras, or there's one camera that's recording two separate images that are one is focused on the background, the other is focused on the foreground, and then those images are put together. Uh, with the with the animation everything can be done just right. I remember seeing uh, Superman Returns. Remember that mm -hmm. attempt they made to reboot the Superman yeah. series? And they finished the movie just as the 3D craze was starting to peak. So they decided what they would do is put a few scenes in the movie that would be 3D and the rest of the movie would be 2D. Right. And there would be a little signal that would appear at the bottom of the screen when the 3D scene was coming up and the audience would put on their glasses. Now, this is a really ridiculous way to show a movie. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, they... <laughs> but it did give us an opportunity to see how much we're missing when we see things in 3D, because you could see the 2D image, which was crystal clear and brilliant and beautiful. And then you put on your glasses to watch the 3D thing, and it's like you're looking at a dirty toilet bowl. You know? <laughs> yeah. And before the movie, they ran one of those Ice Age shorts. You know, mm -hmm. the Ice Age movies? They're yeah. a little. I think that's one of the ones I've seen in 3D. And that looked fantastic in 3D. I mean, that was really amazing. You know, uh, sort of reminded me of like, you remember the GIF? Is it GIF? Viewer, home viewer? Mm hmm. You know, those little plastic things and you put a little card in it and it would show yeah. you like stereoscopic pictures. The ones that worked the best were the ones that were made specifically for the viewer. The ones that tried to use images from other sources that never, you know, that never quite, never quite worked. Uh, but the cartoon stuff always was very impressive. Yeah. Always, always got that thing stood out so clearly against the background that it felt like real 3D. So... I don't know where that leaves us as far as yeah. Wax maybe works, this but... yeah maybe waxwork should have been in 3D. That would yeah, have been maybe. more enjoyable. <laughs> Possibly, or maybe it would have made it more annoying. I don't know. Yeah, no. Yeah, the ending wherever the uh, Patrick Benee shows up with, I guess, uh, I guess a bunch of I guess his friends. They all show up at the end to fight the monsters, and he had his wheelchair with the. And now it's got like uh, flames on the side, right. <laughs> the yes. spikes on the front. I was like, oh, this is. Seems like something they just made up <laughs> that day when they yeah. were filming. Like, hey, what are we going to do? And well, I don't know if Patrick McNee was so um, infirm at that point in his life that he was in a wheelchair and that it had to be that way in the movie. Mm -hmm. It's possible because I think he did have problems with his legs towards the end. 
but I don't know in 1988 if that was true. Uh, but it, it sort of would be hard to understand why he wouldn't, why he would be in a wheelchair if he wasn't, if the, if he himself wasn't, uh, you know, uh, I was all crippled or yeah. <laughs> he wasn't able to get around on his legs anymore. Uh, so I assume that he was physically, you know, incapacitated at that point to some extent. Although I think, didn't he do a view to a kill right around the time, same time to Roger Moore? Um, I can't remember what year that came out. Yeah, maybe that was earlier in the 80s. Uh, but any ca- in any case, I felt sorry for him because I always feel, and I'm a great fan of his, I love the Avengers. We've talked about the, the old British Avengers yeah. TV series. And I always thought that his performance and everybody talks about how great Diana Rigg was and she was great. And Honor Blackman was great in her time. Uh, and the other actors that took over that role uh, were terrific as well. But the heart of the thing was Patrick McNee. His performance as Steed is the sort of unflappable, always polite, always you know charming and funny, always dressed perfectly. Uh, that's such an admirable character. You know, you wish you could be that. I wish yeah. I could be him more than James <laughs> right, Bond. Yeah. Because James Bond looks like he has a pretty hard life, actually. He's always got people trying to shoot him or stab him. Or, you know, even the women he's sleeping with are trying to kill him. Uh, but Steed, he's such a nice guy. You know, it's hard to imagine anybody trying to kill him. Uh, so I always like to see him in movies. But I feel sorry that he didn't really get many roles that were worthy of him, you know, in his, in his later life. Uh, I guess the performance in The Howling was probably the best movie. That was the best thing he got to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at all of his later films, they're pretty a mangy bunch with the exception of The Howling. Uh, so that's a, that's a shame. Uh, the Little Fellow, who I think was the smallest person in the world at that time. I had seen him in person at Ringling Brothers uh, and Bonham and Bailey Circus when I was a kid. I forget his name. Mikush? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> Mahili Michu Mazaros or something like that. And he was from Hungary, I think, or (laughs) Budapest is in Hungary, right? I believe so, yeah. Okay, well, that's, uh, yeah. Anyway, the the interesting thing about him is in addition to being a circus performer, he's the guy that ended up playing Alf. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right, yeah. (laughs) So there is Alf in this movie. There's a little Alf. Yeah, in, in, in this movie. <laughs> well, here's the big question: Was anybody in this movie on Columbo? It, yes, but, but Patrick McNay was on Columbo. Okay, I figured. I figured if it was going to be anybody, it'd be him. I knew you were going to ask. Maybe, that. Or maybe John, maybe John Davies. I thought maybe he was could have been on one, but no. I think John. I think he was too young. I don't think he okay. uh, he wouldn't have been uh, active or known as an actor when Columbo was. Uh, he he might have ended up in later episodes. I know they did that whole you know, the, the 90s episodes. Yeah. So you might have been in one of those. That I don't know. I don't speak about the 90s episodes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the 70s episodes, uh, Patrick McNee played uh, the captain of the ship in the episode where Columbo uh, investigates a murder on a cruise ship. Robert Vaughn, I guess, is the killer. In that. I guess he had the <laughs> his death scene in this movie when he gets his head ripped off and he says something, and I can't remember, he says something like, oh, golly. Or something yeah. as he's getting his head ripped off. <laughs> yeah, I heard. <laughs> but it was... I, I couldn't couldn't quite make it out. Yeah, it was so uh, good that whenever they made the second one, they hit. It's it's like in there as a flashback. Oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah the second one is like starts off soon as this one ends. So it's, they do like a little. Here's what happened. You know, the last five minutes of the last movie before it picks back up. But it it involves time travel and 
Of course, they replaced the actress that plays his girlfriend. So that's just like real. It's a big jolt when you're like, oh, that's not the same girl. Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, it's not as good as learned, this one. <laughs> yeah. the, the actress learned her lesson. Really, I her. guess so. But, uh, and the Zach Gallagher guy, he's not back, right? Yeah, yeah. He, uh, came, he, he came, came back. back? He came back for the second one. Yep. Glutton for punishment. And it's, yeah, and it's like the, it's like a completely different character. It's almost like they, Realized that no one liked that character, so they changed him <laughs> for sure. for the second one. Different clothing, and now he's you know it's just weird. Uh, what weird what movie. what was the thing? Uh, there were two things that struck me as being kind of odd, and maybe the fact that the script was written in three days is the reason for this. But what was this obsession with smoking? Yeah, I don't know. I couldn't. I don't know he what has, that was about. He has at least two or three shots in the movie where he's shown poofing on these long cigarettes. That I mean. If an actor isn't a smoker in real life, probably shouldn't try to smoke on screen because yeah. it never looks convincing. He even had like when he was leaving the house, his butler's like, oh, "Here's your nicotine yes, and here's yeah. your alcohol," and it's just like, yeah. I don't and know, other, I don't know what that was about. The other <clears throat> weird thing is, uh, I mean, it's almost as weird as the fact that a, a wealthy family in a small town America would have an English butler. But we'll put that aside. Yeah, yeah. And who who played the who played that? He he's a familiar he's too. a British comedian. Uh, I don't know if he does. He's done any other movies that Americans would be familiar. Okay. But he's apparently a long-standing British stage comedian. Uh, he's recognizable. I I know I recognize yeah. him as soon as I said, "Oh, I wonder who that." I know that guy. But, but why? Why is he in this movie? Why is he? Why is this family have a British butler? Yeah. <laughs> and how does it come to pass that this guy is the butler of this family all these years? And yet he's also working with Patrick McNee <laughs> to chase after this Lincoln guy. And Patrick McNee, when we find when he when we come upon him in the movie, I guess he's sitting at a piano and playing a song or something. Was that what he's doing? I believe so, yeah. So he doesn't look like he's really knocking himself out to find this Lincoln guy. Yeah. <laughs> he's sort of sitting around hoping that someday somebody will come in and say, Oh, by the way, there's this guy with you know setting up a wax museum. And he'll be able to say, ah, we finally found him at last. That's kind of hard to believe. They come in and the girl tells their little story. And then Patrick McNee is able to piece together everything else. Everything else, yeah. Well, you, I mean, you've said it before, the same problem with you know, in the changeling. And they go to the library and yes. they find everything they need to know, right? right. <laughs> yeah. In this case, they go up to the attic. And every box they open has something relevant to, <laughs> yeah, including. And of course, finding... it's just weird that that Zach Gallagher's character is even relate, even connected yeah. to any of it at all. It's like, why? It doesn't need to be that. You know, you don't need to connect everything to your main character. It's a, it's a. Uh, I think that <clears throat> when I see stuff like that, it's like a crutch that writers use. You know, that instead of coming up with a story that really makes sense, they try to convince you of its realism by. Uh, having everything sort of looped together, you know, it's like Star Wars disease where everybody ends up being yeah. related to, to everybody else. And I don't think they realize how much that destroys the story because spontaneity, the idea that anybody could have gotten sucked up into this adventure is part of the fun for the audience, right? I think that's true for Star Wars as well. I mean, it doesn't make me feel better uh, to know that just a select few group of people that have, you know, a special, you know, place in, in history or fate has decided they, 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 those are the only people that get to go on the adventure the rest yeah. of us schmucks we just have to sit back and 
and you know i don't know <laughs> bide our time until yeah. the empire is overthrown i mean the, yeah the goonies got it right i mean none of the kids yeah. are related to the pirates that were you know what i'm saying it's just uh they just well, happen to do it you know that's the other thing and this film this part of it really felt like society and it's a sort of weak attempt to uh, do a satire of rich people you know to to take sort of a jab at rich people and here they got this woman and one thing i know about rich people i don't know many rich people right <laughs> uh, i i know a few folks in college that had wealthy parents and i spent a little time around them and one thing i know is that whatever we might think about rich people most of them are not fools yeah right they're not going to sit at the dinner table and be unable to see their son while they're conversing because of the big centerpiece that's in front of them. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's not rich people, particularly older, middle-aged, older women. They are expert in all that sort of stuff, how things should be in the household, right? Appearances are very important. So the idea that they, just for the sake of some stupid sight gag, they would put that big centerpiece in the way so they have a meaning to be able to talk to her. <laughs> what is that? Then they have this nonsense about her telling him that he can't drink coffee. Yeah, no, yes. that, that's a that's a characteristic of rich people that they prevent their college age sons from having coffee with their breakfast. I mean, what is that? You know, uh, it's the sort of thing that if you wrote it, you would say you would tear up the papers. Oh, no, no, it's no good. You know, you would never let that go to the actor, you know, because God forbid they might actually read it, you know. Uh, and yet here it is in the movie, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And that character, she disappears. We have, we go to the trouble of introducing her and having that extended dialogue scene with her. And then she's never heard from again. What's the point of that? Right. And the only thing I can think of is they didn't, they had certain sets, right? And they said, we got to do everything on this set. So that room that they were in when they're having breakfast, that might be the same room that they redressed and used later when uh, they're visiting Patrick McNee. Uh, maybe even the same room that they have the wax figures in, you know, the tableaus. Right. So they say, it's got to be done here. And since it's such a grand space, this can't be like a working class family. It's got to be rich people. We got all this fancy furniture sitting around in the prop department. So we'll make use of it, make it look like a big, lush, you know, expensive movie. But it doesn't really make sense. I don't know why we're following more rich young people. I guess that was the that was just something they did in the eighties, there, right? <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, in the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, they mostly working class folks, right? They don't have a crowd, right? Yeah. And I assume that to some extent they were looking over at the the success of Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street and those other movies. Uh, I can see somebody who's a fan of slasher movies looking at this and saying, "Well, that was kind of refreshing." For once, it had a little bit more to it than just, you know, a guy going around with a knife and stabbing people. Right. Yeah. But the problem is, as admirable as it is that they wanted to do something different, they didn't have a fucking story. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Again, like I said, rewatching, I was just like, you know, guess getting to the museum was boring. I didn't care for it. I thought the music, that idea was a good idea. I just didn't execute it well. And also they face a real problem as, as somebody who's written a few things uh, uh, myself over the years. The thing that would really worry me about that premise is how are your characters supposed to act when they get pushed into this other dimension? Yeah, because I noticed the first, though, when our first guy gets pushed into the werewolf one, he and just, he, he just, he, I guess he's not bothered by it. 
He's like, yeah, oh, it's a joke. Really, Who's really playing this sense. joke on me? It's like, dude, right. like you've got long hair now and your clothes are different, and you you think somebody just pulled a, a joke on you? You know, it's, it's just. Well, let's be honest. In a situation like that, what most people would do would be to fall completely silent. Yeah. You would just sort of sit down and you would try to compose yourself, and you would be thinking, "What the fuck is going on?" You know. And well, I guess that was the comedy part of the movie. I that's guess. it. Yeah, they're trying to make it funny, <clears throat> but the problem is by trying to make it funny. The, 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 it's implausible it doesn't work yeah. you know uh i mean that whole sequence to be honest with you uh, it's not really very well done i mean the, yeah and another thing too is like i said when he gets when he gets knocked into you know he steps into that one and he's acting like oh it's you know somebody's playing a joke on me or whatever and when the girl gets goes into the the dracula one she almost becomes a part of it immediately. Like she's just playing, you know what I'm saying? Like she's that character all of a sudden. Yeah. I, I didn't really understand that part of it. Inconsistency. Yeah. yeah. But the, uh, the mean spiritedness of some of the stuff, you know, the, you have characters that are incidental characters that suddenly appear and we're supposed to care about them, I guess. Right, yeah. And then just assume they're being ripped apart, into, ripped into pieces. Uh, what was the business with the guy with his leg sawn off? Yeah, I couldn't. Yeah, that, and he kept saying, I guess he kept talking to her like it was her husband. Yeah, but why? Yeah, I don't know. One of the things about gothic horror is that the, the horror aspect has to have a certain elegance about it. If the characters are humiliated, it's not as effective. There has to be a romantic quality to it because the whole idea is that. Um, we're trying to convince the audience of the attract, attraction of evil. Uh, you, you could, in, in the best Dracula and vampire stories, you could almost imagine yourself saying, eh, that might not be such a bad life, right? Maybe uh, it's not so awful. Uh, and in movies like, um, uh, what's the one with Tilda Swinton? Uh, Only, Only Lovers Love Left Alive. Yeah. No, that which I think is probably one of the best vampire movies ever made, uh, that, uh, in addition to being a sort of a satire of gentrify, gentrification, you know, uh, the idea that the vampires, if we're just following the vampire aspect of it, the idea that the vampires consider themselves so civilized that they don't actually bite people anymore. Yeah. They just, you know, find other ways to get the blood and they treat it almost like fine wine, you know, or like drugs, you know, the high quality stuff, you know. Uh, that's the direction that you should be going in uh, with that type of story, I think. But uh, here we, we suddenly find ourselves in a room with a guy with his leg missing and a, I guess a rat nibbling at his uh, tattered leg. <laughs> this, this is not very pleasant. This is not, it's not scary. So it doesn't right, work yeah. on that level. So I, I think that, well, again, I think that was just more, probably more of the comedy side to it. Well, it uh, didn't get much of a laugh didn't from me. But, uh, but I was reading here about the all of the exhibits that were in there, and they do list the uh, that is supposed to be the pod from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, is so it? Really? Someone has someone has just added that. <laughs> Whoever was editing it <clears throat> thought it was funny to add the <laughs> little shop of horrors well, voice over top of it. That makes it even makes it even sloppier, I guess. Yeah, yeah. and of course, I was also I noticed how I forgot about it. The uh, the baby from it's alive oh yes, <laughs> was yes also in it. yeah <laughs> so that seems like an odd yeah they're covering uh, maybe, maybe he knew who was it that made that movie 
uh, Larry Cohen. Yeah, maybe they were friends or something. I don't know. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I understand the attraction of doing uh, uh, homages to uh, one's favorite filmmakers, uh, but you also have to have a story. You know, yeah. it can't just be that. It can't just be let's invite all our friends over from Monsterland and have a party. Uh, there has to be some sort of story, I think. And I don't think that they had a story here. It's just a no. mess, you know. But uh, it was reasonably well shot, I suppose, as you would expect for a movie with a budget of that sort. Uh, and I don't suppose the actors could be blamed. They're not too bad, right, given the material. Right, uh, yeah. The fellow that plays the guy that gets pushed into the werewolf thing, he ended up in Twin Peaks, right? I believe so, yeah, yeah. yeah. And... Um, and of course, Miku went on to do Alf, and uh, uh, Zach, uh, whatever his name is, Gallagher. he's still acting, right? I believe so. The last I know he done some Star. I know he was on some Star Trek. Uh, oh, was he? Either yeah. in the movies or the Next Generation. I know he's done some other like you know low budget movies after that, but mm -hmm. I'm, I've met him before. He's 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 a decent guy. Oh yeah, well I'm sure all yeah. these people are nice people, and I'm sure that there was no evil intent in making this movie i'm sure it was right yeah <laughs> but it's just it, it, it i guess the my biggest criticism would be the, the tone the inconsistency in the tone yeah uh, the inability to say this is the direction we want this is the effect we want to achieve let's do that instead they want to do this and that and the other thing and you know and it just ends up like a big hash yeah i would say drop the comedy part of it and have it as a traveling circus <laughs> or a traveling carnival would have been a better idea. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I would always say drop the comedy part of it. I think that that's a disease that's affected uh, particularly low budget movies is that people think that they can take a, a bad movie or a poorly thought out story and then make it passable by spoofing it, by sending it up. Yeah. And I, I think that it just, because let's be honest, most of these things that are supposedly comedies, our comedies, they're not really they're not funny. funny. Yeah, they're not. I think they <laughs> do that so that way I can say, well, we're just making a comedy. You know? Exactly. Right. <laughs> That's it, not a really good horror movie. Well, it's a comedy. So right. exactly. You know, it's excuse an excuse for that. You know? It's like uh, Pee Wee falling off his bike and saying, I meant to do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, it and it does require more effort, you know, and it's a greater risk to say we're going to play this dead straight. You know, because people might end up laughing at it as a result. Yeah. So I guess a lot of people say, well, if they're going to laugh, we might as well make it a comedy to begin with. You know? Yeah. And this probably would have worked better as, as an anthology, too. Yeah. yeah. Each each exhibits its own story, which, you know, kind of reminded me of like, you know, night galleries or right. you said the first House of Wax was, that's what it was, right? Well, yeah. Mis uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum. Well, Waxworks. Waxworks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think Torture Garden, the amicus film with Burgess Meredith and Jack Palance, is similar. Uh, it's a carnival type thing with a with a, a sideshow uh, barker showing different people in the tent what their future is going to be. Each exhibit uh, or whatever he shows them sort of portray portrays or allows them to see what their future is going to be. And that's a pretty solid amicus anthology movie. I don't know if you're a fan of the Amicus anthology films. You know Amicus? The, yeah, yeah. They did Tales from the Crypt and the Vault of Horror and Torture Garden and oh, several. Yeah, there was one of them. I can't remember if it was 
Because there was two Tales from the Crypt, right? One of them had one of them, one of them had Tom Baker in it, so I yes, was like that, a fan of that because right. he's my favorite Doctor. But I think that was in was that Tales from the Crypt, like the second one. Uh, well, it had a different there was name, Tales from the Crypt, and then there was Vault of Horror. Maybe it was Vault of Horror. Both of those titles are EC Comics. Yeah. So uh, that that I guess is like a little mini series in itself. But then they did a bunch of other anthology films. Uh, that were based on particular writers. Like they did one that was all Robert Block stories and, you know, so on. I saw one called, I think it was called Beyond the Door or Beyond the Grave. Uh, and that was reasonably effective. Uh, and um, anyway, people can probably look up online and find a number of the Amicus anthology films. Uh, they're not all gems. Some of them are kind of dopey and, Sometimes they make the same mistake that this movie makes and that they try to get around uh, weaknesses in the story by turning them into comedies. Yeah. You know, they always have. Yeah, just like they had, they had the, uh, the main villain. What's his name? I don't think he had a name. And in the credits, he just looks, he's listed as waxwork guy or waxwork man. But his, his, his butler, the gigantic, you know, the tall, that seemed like out of, you know, at the end, he's like crying and it's yeah. just like, why? Like you didn't like, yeah. why is it even in here? Yeah, it, it does feel completely inconsistent. There's no, you keep hoping that you're going to be able to predict how people are going to behave, especially that late in the movie. Yeah. And yet they're constantly throwing stuff at you that is, it, it's not, uh, you can't say it's good because it's not predictable. You want a little predictability. You want to be able to feel that you understand the story well enough so that you know what direction the characters are going to go in. And that doesn't make any sense to me at all. I mean, the character looks like they're doing like a lurch type yeah. character. Uh, I don't remember lurch ever crying, but maybe. No. I... <laughs> but, uh... but it was just like it was I'm just out of nowhere. He actually, yeah, he kills the guy instead of putting him in the. And then now he's, you know, now he's upset because the guy yelled at him. And I'm just like, you didn't need any of that unless you were going to expand on that more <laughs> and tell us more about yeah. that character. It all feels like filler. Uh, yeah. All that stuff with the cops all feels like filler too. They got, I guess they were trying to do like a Miami Vice type uh, cops. Yeah, because that didn't make sense either because he, he felt like he didn't really believe him. And then, then he leaves and he's like, well, wait a minute. I did see something. So now I'm going to go back and... Yeah. It was just, I don't know. Yeah, I hate that sort of stuff, like the dialogue he has with, with Zach, uh, Zach guy, mm -hmm. where he's a buck. You shut up, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you behaving this way? This kid says there's something funny going on in this place. And in front of the guy that may be a murderer or, or something, you tell him the only witness, you shut up and sit down. You yeah. Know? That's like cliched shit that comes from movies from the, 30s you know the cops are always oh, oh, yeah, yeah. we're gonna take care of this now you know that's corny crap you know and why that, that guy was about as unconvincing as a tough guy cop as you could be right i mean he looks like he's wearing his daddy's suit and he and you know he, he's another guy that doesn't know how to smoke a cigarette yeah and the conversation he's having with with david warner seems wrong the things he's saying seem wrong for his character like they're talking what were they talking about egyptian stuff? Egy yeah because he was he was into egyptian you know which 
perfect for him to get pushed that, into the yeah, Egyptian. Yeah. That doesn't sound like the sort of thing that you would hear from a tough guy cop, right? Uh, and I, I think they're trying to suggest there that there was a little flirtation between David Warner character and him. Because he seems to be getting very, you know, yeah. when he's talking to him. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't know what the point of that is either, to be honest. Yeah, I don't know why they would add filler. I mean, this this movie was an hour and thirty five minutes. They could have cut some stuff out of this and well, improved the pacing at the beginning a little bit. <laughs> yeah, with horror movies, you always sort of, and it's funny to say this, but I, I think even a movie like Spookies, as bad as that movie is, as much of a mess as it is, it's better than this because yeah. at least there was a little bit of suspense. You know, you wondered when somebody would go. It goes down a hall and goes into a room. You there's a little bit of suspense. What's going to happen? There's there's nothing like that. There's no scenes of them sort of creeping around the, the wax museum. There's no uh, time spent trying to generate any real suspense. You know, and, and that's important, I would think, in a film like this, right? Uh, it's as soon as they come in, it's like whatever's going to happen happens immediately. They're all going through the displays, and uh, you know, it's just. It seems forced and contrived, and it's not funny if it wants to be funny. It's not really scary. I don't know what the hell it is. And yet I'm surprised to see online, it's a lot of people declaring their love for this film. Yeah. I don't know if it's because it's something they saw when they were younger and they, they just haven't seen it recently. Yeah, I would say they probably need to watch it again yeah. <laughs> because it's definitely got some issues. Yeah, it's not, not, not too great. But Mystery of the Wax Museum, I would definitely recommend the restored version that was just done, I guess, a couple of years ago that I, I think probably is well worth checking out. That's, yeah. you know, so that, and that was a, a big production. That wasn't a, a puny production. It was directed by Michael Curtiz, who ended up directing Casablanca and some of the camera work and, and uh, you know, the production aspects are beautifully done. So that I would recommend. House of Wax is a lot of fun. It's very yeah, colorful. Uh, yeah, the House of Wax, the, the original one well, that was, I really like. That, that, yeah, yes, that's right. <laughs> Actually, uh, House of Wax was the original. Of, <laughs> yeah. There was a remake of that, yes. But uh, you might want to watch Mystery of the Wax Museum just to see how House of Wax compares because the stories are very similar. The yeah, difference, I mean, yeah, no. The difference is that Mystery of the Wax Museum takes place in the 30s. And when they did the remake, they said they made it into a period piece, I guess, because they wanted to show off all the costumes and everything that they thought that the sets and the costumes and the period setting would be particularly impressive in 3D. But uh, House of Wax certainly visually is a beautiful film. The only problem I had with House of Wax is that I thought they introduced uh, Vincent Price's deformed face too early in the movie. Right, yeah. He really should be, you know, just with the hat down and creeping around, just a presence until later in the film when it's more dramatically effective to reveal him. Uh, that, that, you know, that's a minor complaint, but uh, it's, it's still a fun film. Yeah, I wish I could remember the one I was watching that had John Carradine in it. Uh, well. Unless I completely made that up, I don't know. <laughs> was, it, was it in black and white? <clears throat> No, I believe it was in color. Yeah. Well, that would be, that's an interesting topic for research, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll edit that in. When, uh, okay, yeah, when, <laughs> yeah, when we find it. I was going to say, I'm, try, I'm trying to Google real quick, see if I can locate it. Well, uh, there was a Charlie Chan movie that took place in a wax museum. I think it's actually called Charlie Chan at the Wax Museum. 
I haven't watched that, but that's available online for people who can't get enough wax museum uh, right. thrills. Uh, yeah, it's pretty, probably a pretty long list. Uh, uh, it was kind of a, uh, you know, sort of an accepted cliche or almost like a subgenre, uh, wax museums and haunted houses, uh, you know, shared popularity. I guess also because it was an opportunity to bring in uh, gore and morbid stuff that maybe in earlier years, back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, would have been considered, you know, unacceptable in those movies. Yeah. Terror in the Wax Museum is the one. Okay. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Directed by George uh, Fenaday. Doesn't ring a bell. And John Carradine's in it, yeah. Does it have a synopsis? Uh, setting is in the 1890s in the London Wax Museum. Known for its collection of famous figures, someone is killing the guests. When Dupree is murdered, Margaret Collins' his niece decides to continue the family business. Hmm. So I'm going to have to finish watching that one. All righty. Well, sounds like anything with John Carradine is usually worth watching for him. If yeah. Else. <laughs> now, is he, is he the... Uh, I'm going to say like great-grandfather of all the other Carradines that are Kung Fu, Carradine, all those. Is, is that the well, same family? I, he was the father of David Carradine. There we go. Okay, yeah. And Keith Carradine. Uh, is there another Carradine? I thought there was another one. I can't remember. I can't remember. Well, David, of course, is the famous one. Yeah. <laughs> Keith Carradine was a big movie star for a while. Uh, and uh, I think he didn't he star in Nashville, the Robert Altman film? I believe so, yeah. He wrote the pop, that hit song, I'm Easy. I won't do a rendition. Okay. <laughs> For some reason I was thinking there was a there was a daughter or like a I'm not like sure. An actress that was also but I maybe think of somebody else. Maybe they're <clears throat> Yeah, yeah. But John Carradine, as far as I know, is the father of David and Keith. Okay. And John Carradine was acting in movies. I guess up into the late 70s. As a matter of fact, I think he was even doing stage shows in the 80s. I think he did, uh, there was a very expensive and unsuccessful attempt to do Frankenstein on stage. And I think he was in that. Uh, I don't think he had a major part, but uh, you know, he was in it. So he was, he kept going for a long time. Even after his, the arthritis made his hands almost into claws, he was right. still acting in movies. But uh, uh, I always enjoy his performance in Shockwaves, that the zombie, uh, the Nazi zombie movie. Yeah, my favorite Nazi zombie movie. One of my favorite zombie movies, actually. Uh, and I think his presence in that movie, along with Peter Cushing, really. According to uh, IMDb, here his last movie he made was in '95. Holy shit! Called, called Jacko. <laughs> Jacko. Wow. Which I believe I've seen on the maybe one of the uh, Red Letter Media. Uh, uh, Halloween specials, I think they covered it. <laughs> it sounds familiar, yeah. Yeah, but I didn't realize uh, he was in it. I, I wonder if it's archive footage or if it's actually. I, it could be. I don't know because I'm not sure when he died. Of course, you know, in '86 he was in the the Twilight Zone series, the one from oh, the '80s. So. Okay, so well, he really was a trooper. Yeah. <laughs> Ever turned down a role? Take whatever. I just, along. I just, you know, just imagine they probably wheeled him in, <laughs> read a line, and they wheeled him back out. Well, for that that generation of actors, a lot of those Universal guys, that was pretty much the case. I mean, they, I mean, Lon Chaney was an alcoholic, and he apparently 
a fearsome alcoholic. He was a, <laughs> a, a menace when he was drunk, but he was acting too, right up to shortly before his death. And, you know, he's one of those guys that after he died, they continued to release movies that he had made. You know? They hadn't gotten yeah. them out yet into theaters. And uh, Boris Koloff was the same way, right? They had, they had like a whole bunch of uh, Mexican movies that he did that came out a year or two after he died. So, uh, I mean, I admire that. I think if, if you're an actor, you should act. Oh, yeah. Go ahead and do it up until you can't physically really do it anymore. Yeah. yeah. And if, if particularly like in the case of some of these guys, the movie might have only been financed because they got them involved. Got the, right? Yeah. Two or three yeah. of those big name actors, folks that are considered reliable box office and that uh, made, made a job for everybody. Yeah, of course, I always think like when they, somebody gets too old and it's just like, hey, you don't want to take advantage of them. You know, maybe they're yeah. somebody's forcing them to do it or they're just bringing a camera to their house. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Patrick <laughs> McNee, apparently at some point he became so infirm that he just went to the uh, to like a senior citizens or right. old, old age facility for actors. And I guess he lived out the uh, last years of his life there. Uh, I saw a photo that was guess was the Hollywood reporter when they reported his death and there's a photo of him and I have to admit I didn't even recognize him didn't look anything like himself yeah. you know so I don't know if they got the wrong photo or if he had just changed so much uh, in his last years yeah I know he's not acting anymore but Tim Curry like yeah you know, he had that I just saw it. and he's and he, I'm he, like so you know you just imagine you know whoever's taking care of him like taking money that way you know letting people come in and film me and i'm just like that's horrible you know <laughs> uh, are you referring to these videos that he's been doing? i haven't no i'm just i mean i've seen him do like you know he does like autographs from his home and mails them out or whatever but right well he had, <laughs> he's done a several um i saw one just last night as a matter of fact it's funny that you should raise his name uh a fan uh zoom conferencing with him i assume this was some sort of thing where you can zoom conference with tim curry for a certain amount of money mm -hmm. anyway he's you know he's clearly a person who survived the stroke his face is sort of uh, partially paralyzed but he's coherent and oh, okay know. so he's yeah okay that's that, i've just seen the pictures and i just imagine him being not mentally all there or whatever but i guess yeah. he is no he appears to be i mean he doesn't seem uh he, he's not full of life you know he's right, not the yeah. tim curry that we remember but one would it would be surprising if if he was considering what he's gone through i i when i see stuff like that i think to myself well maybe there's some hope that at some point if he i don't know if he's doing therapy or whatever maybe he can build himself back from that because he's only in his 70s which is yeah. still a relatively young age nowadays right uh, but uh, he's it's certainly sad when somebody is known for being such a a, you know, a live person, so full of life, to see them in that sort of reduced state, it's kind of sad. But it's better than the alternative. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so he's still around. I guess yeah. we should be thankful for that. Yep. All right. So <clears throat> I take it you do not recommend wax work. Yeah, I can't. Uh, but you do recommend the original wax work <laughs> and, well, of course, all the other wax well, I, movies. I think wax works, the 1924 <clears throat> silent film, might be worth seeing. I haven't watched it yet myself, but I plan to. But I definitely would recommend Mystery at the Wax Museum, which is 1933 with Lionel Atwell and Faye Ray. And I would recommend House of Wax with Vincent Price, which I guess is 1953 or 57, something like that. Uh, 
those are two good, entertaining, well-produced, uh, you know, fun Hollywood horror movies. And uh, in, the, in both cases, they're kind of important films in film history because uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum was an early color film. It was the last film that was done in two-strip Technicolor. Uh, so it's important for that reason. Uh, and it's interesting to see what could be done with just two colors. Uh, that's interesting in itself. And then House of Wax was, the, was uh, one of the first uh, 3D movies. It was certainly one of the first big budget yeah. you know, Hollywood 3D movies. So they're worth watching just for their historical significance, but they're also a lot of fun, I think. Yeah, and of course, House of Wax has Vincent Price. So. Can't beat Vincent Price. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Always fun to watch. Yeah, and that also has, um, uh, what's his name, Charles Bronson, mm -hmm. playing a heavy, an earlier, an early role. I, I don't know. If, I guess he did a couple of films with Vincent Price around that time. He was also in that Master of the World, the Jules Verne mm -hmm. adaptation. Yeah. I think he was also in that. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see Charles Bronson at an early stage in his development. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I don't know if I recommend this one or not. I think it's, I mean, if you never see it, you're not missing anything. I definitely don't recommend the sequel. <laughs> okay. So cross uh, that out the list. Yeah. <laughs> so don't even bother with that one. But yeah, all the other ones I recommend. I mean, even the remake of House of Wax was, for what it was, was kind of enjoyable. I know everybody hated it because Paris Hilton was in it, but she doesn't last long in it. So you're not, oh, there you <clears> go. you're not like, you know, tortured by her for the whole <laughs> thing. But she wasn't bad. I'm not going to like act like she was the worst thing about that movie. But yeah, I recommend all the other ones House of Wax. I'm going to finish watching the Mystery of the Wax Museum. I'm going to watch the, for you, know, you sent me that first one, the Wax Works. I'm going to check that out. So, yeah, definitely, I recommend it. Just not this one. Yeah. It's uh, it, it it's very definitely a, a 80s film in all the worst ways. I yeah, think. yeah. So just wait till somebody listens to this episode, takes our ideas and makes remakes it, and then you can watch that one. There you go. Well, yeah. <laughs> we'll see if that happens. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So uh, where, can, where can everybody find your movies at on the internet there? Well, uh, Demon Resurrection, my uh, film from 2008, is available on Tubi TV and Zumo TV, and it's also available on Vimeo on demand. And uh, it, it's probably available on some various independent Roku channels. Uh, and uh, I have Twitter uh, accounts and Facebook pages for both of my films, Demon Resurrection and Sleepless Nights, which is a, a new re-edited, restored version, revamped as we're calling it, it's a vampire movie. <laughs> Uh, that's going to be out soon, hopefully. It's uh, basically the edit is completed and it'll be going out hopefully in the next few months, you know. So something to look forward to. And you can find, keep up with the latest news on Sleepless Nights and Demon Resurrection on Facebook. There are easily found pages for both films. Uh, a fellow by the name of uh, David Frasina uh, reached out to me about a movie that he made it's called uh, When the Witches Came to Town. And it's a very intriguing premise. Uh, he went and interviewed all the people who were in the town where they shot the Witches of Eastwick. Oh, okay. There's a lot of interesting behind the scenes stuff. And uh, I don't think it's available on streaming, but uh, it's available on DVD and it might be available on streaming eventually. So you can look him up, David Frasina, and the Witches, When the Witches Came to Town. 
uh, should be available on Amazon uh, for purchase and yeah. worth worth checking out. I have to get get all the links and put them in the description when I post. Yes, this. and I also like to put him in touch with you, and maybe at some point we could do a show about this documentary. Oh yeah, that would be yeah, that'd be interesting. No, you are talking about the Witches of Eastwick. The Witches Equal with Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson, yes. yes, love that movie. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I love that movie. Well, uh, then you might be the perfect audience for this because uh, it, you know, shows you all the places, all the locations where the film was shot, which has become a kind of a popular thing on YouTube. You see YouTube, a lot of, yeah. We saw I saw a lot of that for Let's Get Jessica to Death as well, where people go to the house where it was shot, and, you know, to see if it's still standing. It is surprising. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, other than Jack Nicholson and Cher and what you know, the uh, throwing or when he when they throw up the uh, that woman throws up all the cherry pits. Oh right, <laughs> it's yes. like that's, that's like that's what that's what I remember the most about that movie. <laughs> well, uh, uh, David actually reminded me that uh, this was the, the movie uh, Witches of Eastwick was directed by George Miller. Oh, was it? Yeah, I had forgotten that completely. I thought it was. You know, and apparently it was a very troubled production. So another reason to check this I'll, out. Yeah, I'll have to check all that the out. details on what a scandalous, uh, you know, production it was. What a yeah. difficult production it was. We'll have to do that. Yeah, get him come on and talk about it. That'd be interesting. Yeah, might be interesting. Yeah, yep. absolutely. All right. Well, this was a fun episode, and until next week, we will continue to watch the good, the bad, and the cheaply made.